Working Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. In this episode, I have a conversation with Joshua Vile, co-founder and catalyst at Inspiral a virtual and physical network of companies and professionals brought together by a set of shared values and a passion for positive social impact. Inspiral's vision is, quote, more people working on stuff that matters, and they've managed to successfully establish a social enterprise support network to achieve this vision. Joshua is a catalyst at Inspiral and is active across several of Inspiral's ventures. This episode is two separate conversations combined. The topic... The future of how we might work together on stuff that matters is big, and we barely scratch the surface. Our first conversation unpacks some elements of Inspiral's innovative business model, and our second conversation goes deep on the philosophy of participatory organizations. Get your pen and paper ready, and be sure to reference the show notes. There's a lot of value in this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Kind of how I like to start them out is to just ask a little bit about, you know, kind of your your personal history in relationship to the work that you're doing with Inspiral and kind of how you came to um, basically establishing this, this interesting organization that, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think, I think it's kind of, I would say the future of how working together, how people are going to be working together is going to look, I would hope, um, for many of us, uh, as we, uh, as we begin to kind of address some of the challenges that don't seem to be getting addressed very well by governments, for instance, or by, uh, for-profit entities. Um, and you kind of need to have an interesting mix of passion and problem solving, which, um, when, when I look at what you guys are up to down there in New Zealand, I, I see a bit of that going on for sure. So, I'm curious to see how you came to it in your own words, and it's on the internet there. You can you can read about it on blog posts that you've written and such. But I'd like to like to ask you to kind of explain again now in your own words. Sure. Um, so I think Inspiral really started for me when I was a programmer. So I was doing freelance consulting work, and I'd spend a couple of days a week working, and then the rest of my time volunteering, really just trying to figure out how to turn my time into meaningful impact. So I did a bunch of um, youth leadership things, climate change work, environmental campaigns, just really a broad spectrum of things. And I started to meet a huge number of people who were really motivated to make a difference, and but often had quite limited work opportunities to do so. So it felt like changing the world was something you did in your spare time, while in your day job you worked in a government or a company or whatnot, which felt quite disconnected with what people felt was the most important work of their times. And so Inspire was really um, just the idea of if I can help people who want to change the world get high-paid contract work, then they can become self-funded change makers and work on whatever they want, whenever they want. 
that was, the, I guess, the key idea. And it, it sort of grew a lot from there, but that's what got me started. So I just started saying yes to all the programming contracts I could find and then scrambling to find people who with sort of shared values who wanted to do the work, and um, that's how we got started. We, we layered in some ideas around decentralized organization and that the information systems we have now make decentralized organizations where money, information, and power are distributed amongst the organization rather than con concentrated in certain people as a, a more optimal form of organizing and experimenting with decentralized management structures. And then we also started to focus on entrepreneurship and creating businesses and actually creating jobs where it wasn't just go earn money quite effectively and then spend your time. It became actually how can you make your full-time job have a social or environmental impact. Okay, so some of the some of the ideas there, you know, you guys came together as a, you know, a group of consultants almost in a sense, right? In in the beginning, where you were trying to, you know, work on these various programming projects, uh, you know, fee for service type work, and then you would you would free up your time to work on other things um, as an organization. Uh, pro bono in a sense i'm guessing is that right yeah it was pretty much network freelance a network of freelance programmers and then um we also started to diversify our skill sets so we started like a law firm an accounting firm started getting designers in the mix and account managers and whatnot so and some facilitators and just a various groups of people but the main business model was talented folks that were selling their time and then um, there, off the back of that, we started to build relationships with each other and find opportunities to actually build different kinds of ventures. Right. And that's kind of where you guys are at now with, with the different ventures that you have under your, your larger Inspiral umbrella, in a sense, right? Yeah, I'd say about half of the ventures are still, well, something like half, are still people selling time. And the other half are people, often it's software, so software as a service businesses, mm -hmm. um, or people selling education and training services. Um, we've got um, a new venture just joined who are doing sort of 3D printing for assistive devices for folks with disabilities. And then we've got um, a bunch of other people who are doing more like membership-based organizations for um, activism, or we've got um, one is a independent news outlet. So they're sort of more sort of um, selling licenses to content. Right. Interesting. Yeah. It, it seems like there's a lot of flexibility on, on the, uh, I guess I'd, on the front line of, of services and kind of knowledge worker type work that, that comes with uh, programming services and, um, you know, uh, info product marketing and these kind of things seem more con you know, conducive to this kind of arrangement of workers coming together. Oh, yeah, I think so. I think that there's definitely, I mean, if you've got um, some talented friends who have got skills that are valued in a the marketplace, then it's pretty easy to start a company where you can sell those things together. There's still lots of problems to solve and lots of challenges and and the way of organizing work and everything is challenging. But particularly when it's digital services, it's a bit easier to leverage technology. And so I found that in Spiral folks, when I started to meet other people who tried similar types of organizations, I found that there was not just a high level of technical literacy, so people would sign up for new tools quite easily, but also when there was a problem, we could build a tool around it, which we did with like Lumio and CoBudget. So definitely having starting with a group of programmers, programmers we had we found quite a lot of advantages with. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that there's an advantage for um, for folks in the in the software engineering crowd 
to kind of start this this interesting approach to to a business model that that you guys have started here, where you begin to kind of come together under um, you know under a single roof and just go out and try to find as many contracts as you can, knowing that you have the manpower, so to speak, to handle it. And then in landing the bigger contracts, freeing yourself up to work on more interesting things. It seems like with, uh, with so many other, uh, you know, organizations that have, um, you know, knowledge, knowledge workers working within them, that, uh, that hurdle is, is, uh, I, I feel it's it's more it's more difficult to kind of overcome, and some of the some of the presentations that you're going to be giving while you're on the West Coast are around uh, basically how to kind of start up this work in your given business ecosystem wherever you might be working. But is it is it kind of more focused at at the software end of things and at the digital services end of things, or do you see this this business model? Um, as something that can be also applied to other disciplines and other areas? I think that uh, the idea of starting a professional services cooperative, which is sort of what the Programming Freelancers Collective is, I think is a, a, an option for some areas, and it's harder in some and easier in others. So I think it's you know easier for a group of programmers to get together and start a cooperative, mostly because of the market for what they can charge their rates at. Whereas if you try to do, say, a writer's cooperative, like often freelance writers, the biggest problem they have is finding people to pay them what they're worth because the market for content is just a lot harder. And so that if you have got different skills in your cooperative, then I think you'll have different outcomes in terms of how much surplus you can make individually or collectively and how easy it is to get started. Like maybe you need a lot more experience to cut through and earn the sort of rates that would make sense. And And I'd say that uh, so that's definitely, you know, a strategy of getting into this. But primarily, for Inspiral, what we are is a cooperative of entrepreneurs, that we're people who are starting businesses together and using the tools of business to provide livelihoods for folks and to make a difference in the world. And that I think there are other pathways which we haven't taken to start out in that space, and that it's all about finding a couple of strong businesses who want to band together. And that by using them as, I guess, the rootstock of the community, mm. that then you can start to help people who want to start businesses have any fun of it, no matter what sort of businesses they want to start. And so I found that Inspire has really evolved into a network of businesses, which is a cooperative of entrepreneurs. And I think that's quite separate from the, where we started, which was a collective of programmers. Now, I, I like this term, cooperative of entrepreneurs. Uh, it, it seems like an oxymoron, I think, to many of us who, uh, you know, who come at this stuff from, you know, from a kind of modern lens on things, right? That the entrepreneur is supposed to be this, uh, <laughs> you know, this individual who's going to go out and conquer the world with his or her idea and make a ton of money. Uh, it, it's all, it's all these kind of these uh, myths and, and ideas that come down from Ayn Rand and from F. Scott Fitzgerald and you know, these kind of ideas, right, of the of the sole individual who goes out and conquers the market. But then you have this this other notion of the cooperative, which, you know, I'm thinking of Mondragon and like all of these worker cooperatives that are that are coming together and sharing resources as much as possible. 
So how do you guys, like, it, it seems like a delicate tension that, uh, you know, that would need to be balanced in some way. And do you find that leadership and kind of the ability to um, lead together, so to speak, is a very important aspect of your guys' work? Do you feel that you're ever at risk of becoming co-opted by a certain member in your community who wants to, um, you know, lead things down a certain path? Like, how do you guys... How do you guys negotiate those tensions and those power dynamics? A few questions. So I think one of them is that when I one of the theories of change I've got and a bunch of us um, are sort of playing with is that cooperatives we've had them for a long time. You know, they've had lots of there's lots of benefits you can point to them, but they've also one of the challenges that they faced is that they're often slow, unwieldy, and frustrating to work in that trying to get lots of people to participate in a decision is often frustrating and, and expensive. And so one of the key theories of change we're exploring is can software and information systems and the internet basically be used to make cooperatives more efficient so we still keep the values of democratic ownership or of um, peer production or of working with your colleagues or having power with rather than power over kind of dynamics but we try and solve the inefficiencies that come from doing that face to face and with paper by custom design software and that's still a theory that we're experimenting with and saying is that can can we make that true I think uh, and another one is that there's definitely a real tension between individual freedom and collective action and collective agreement that and that we have a strong principle of valuing both. We want individuals to have a lot of autonomy and freedom and flexibility to work the way they want to work and we deeply value coming to agreements and moving forward as a group. And that that tension, I think, is quite a healthy one. And that often you see in some ideologies, and I would describe the traditional tech startup scene as one of them, is that they value freedom over collaboration too much. And I think you see this directly in the low-trust blockchain sort of narratives, where mm -hmm. it's all about working with people you don't trust. And I think that they, yeah. there's big opportunities in the blockchain community and technology to actually, what does it look like to design these systems when a group of people do deeply trust each other? Um, where, when, what's valuable in that space? And I think that when you look at the opportunity we've seen is that when you look at entrepreneurs and the lives that they lead, really stressful, often really isolating, massive pressure. And a lot of the traditional ecosystems tend to chew them up and spit them out. It's investors and folks who basically are running the numbers of finding the next big win. And if they lose 99% of the folks along the way, it doesn't matter. Um, and lose by, they lose their money, but also people um, have suffer harm from working too hard or they burn out or they're isolated and they need to go and you know recover for a couple of years from their startup experience, which mm -hmm. also is an uncommon. And I think when you start to reframe it to actually, how can a community of people provide care and support for entrepreneurs on quite a challenging journey? Um, and that could be financial, that could be social, it could be emotional, it could be just having a group of peers who deeply care for each other through quite a high challenging journey of starting a business. And I think that that, that key idea is how I see, um, I guess, an entrepreneurial cooperative. That's fantastic. That's great. I mean, because there's a lot of things going on, uh, going on for somebody who's trying to start something new. I mean, like, it shouldn't be this, this isolating experience, but that seems to be the mainstream conception of what it means to, you know, to have a, a you know, a project that you're starting on the side, or something that you've quit your job to pursue full fledged, 
there's just this narrative of having to work, you know, 16 hour days and, you know, kill yourself to, to compete in the marketplace uh, against other entrepreneurs who are supposedly doing the same thing. Um, and, and really there, it doesn't, it doesn't seem, uh, it doesn't seem right to me at least, you know, cause so much of what we're trying to do in, in starting our own thing is to create that, that work-life integration or work-life balance or whatever you want to call it. You want to try to create, um, an ability to, a, an ability to feel passionate about what you have to make money from, um, so that you don't feel like you're you're leaving behind your true calling or your true life when you go and do that work. Now, I think this this other thing that you mentioned, blockchain. It sounds like what you guys are basically getting at here is that you want to you want to try to look at what can what can we use these technologies and tools for um, if we have a group of trusting people, which is a little different, as you were saying, from the dominant narrative around blockchain, which is you know isn't this thing fantastic? We can have people who have no relationship with each other be able to trust one another to get something done. So are you guys, are you guys exploring how to use blockchain in this way as, as something that, is that what you meant by that statement? Or are you guys actually trying to go, um, you know, around blockchain, so to speak, to get at this question of, you know, how to, how to create trusting relationships in a cooperative model of entrepreneurs? So we've got a few people who are exploring little pieces of the blockchain, but we don't have any blockchain-based ventures or groups of people who are investing lots and lots in it. And I think that when we look at how we've solved a lot of our problems in the context of a small group of highly trusted peers, then blockchain wouldn't be the obvious solution. It's like if you want a public ledger, you can do that with different mechanisms, Then, which to us is a lot of the value of the blockchain, is that oh, here's something which is in the public domain as a, a store of information. Uh, we've got, you know, everyone, a lot of us are following it though, and uh, you know, looking for opportunities and thinking about it. But short version is, we're not doing lots in the blockchain space. Hmm. And so, essentially, what you're trying to get at then is is basically how to use uh, digital tools, uh, software, the internet, things like this, as you were saying, to better cooperate and better collaborate. And do you guys run into this? issue i guess that comes with uh with group work with adults in group work spaces where you, you almost feel you need to actually be together in person um to be able to you know to establish the container of trust i guess you know to establish that uh that common ground to work from do you feel that that's one of the bigger challenges that you're up against in trying to pursue um you know, digital tools and things like this for building a, a more collective and collaborative working arrangement between folks? Yeah, I think that the, the best thing I've seen which builds trust between people is time together. But mm. I don't think all time is created equal. Like time right. spent on voice calls or video calls or Slack is different to time spent in a intensive retreat in a live-in residential environment. Yeah. So... I've found that face-to-face time, like the higher the intensity, whether it's on a retreat or in a co-working space or just spending time with folks, the higher the intensity, the quicker trust builds and the deeper the relationships. 
So you can spend seven days with someone and then feel very close to them afterwards. Mm -hmm. And one of the rules of thumb that I've seen work is that establish relationships in person and maintain them digitally. So that once the relationship has been established and once you understand someone and know more about them and what and how they work, it's much easier to literally hear their voice when you read something in Slack or an email. And you can start to reframe it with your understanding of where they're at. So it just avoids a lot of miscommunications. And even then, digital asynchronous text is still a very challenging format to make work for lots of content um, topics. And I think that, so we've, we've been really playing with both how do we lean on digital technology a lot, but also how do we really respect in-person experiences and retreats and facilitation spaces, mm. yeah. which would be just key to what's worked for us as the other stuff. No, it's interesting. I mean, I do think that because of what the internet affords us, we have this ability to um, kind of lift up from a local space and join this global community of folks who are, you know, talking about the same same ideas uh, that you're that you're thinking about and considering, but that maybe aren't near you, that aren't uh, within your immediate vicinity. Um, but you're getting at this other thing here, which I think is really important, which is forming the group before you venture into that space. I think that I think that's what's really missing in a lot of uh in a lot of the spaces that I see online where people are collaborating and doing interesting things is this coming together and so often that just gets it, I think it gets poorly handled by <laughs> by these communities for the most part unless they're thinking really innovatively of about how they might want to bring together folks for a conference and to actually facilitate a a conference that that is more of a networking event or more of a more of a gathering as opposed to a kind of talking head symposium i think that that's the that's the model that so often um you know, traps a lot of our best efforts to create community online is that we might, yeah, come back, come together and see each other in person, but it's in this cold professional space of the conference. Uh, and, and there's, there's very few of us, I think, who are working in those conference organizing spaces that are trying to think through that problem, which, which, uh, which I believe you're getting at here. So do you guys, do you guys see yourselves as playing any role in kind of coming at this problem from the reverse angle where instead of, you know, kind of looking at how your team can better collaborate together and, and come together on these projects and then distribute and be accessible digitally coming at it from the other angle where you're, you're clearly kind of being recognized and, uh, and known globally online and in these spaces and and now kind of beginning to kind of collect and gather in that interest from around the world in some sort of in some sort of way that allows people to experience what Inspiral is about and and kind of get a get a sense of connection with with the team there and maybe eventually join into it in some way 
So I, I think that uh, for us, just as important as having a bunch of programmers who can earn money pretty easily was is for sort of our, uh, some of our forming DNA. I'd say it was just as important that we had a bunch of quite experienced facilitators who were very comfortable creating and designing and holding spaces for true peer relationships. Mm-hmm. And that that was without that we wouldn't have been here. And so we de- we've got a company at the moment called EXP who specialise in sort of facilitation and designing those sorts of experiences. And I think that it's, um, yeah, I definitely wouldn't want to underestimate the role that um, on facilitation has had on, on the group forming. And because it's really easy that uh, you can have experiences which is lots of people being spoken at or sterile or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So we were quite fortunate to have those skills in our group from quite early on. And I think in terms of collaborating, we've probably, we've got two main series of, of growth at the moment. Like we've got a, a working group that started in Spiral to look at how, how we're growing and to manage growth and to think about it. And so it's still sort of under, we're, we're, we're forming our strategy in this space. But for the last couple of years, we've had a very strong um, intention to open source in Spiral. So if we figured it we'd like to open source it and share it with, with folks who are interested. And that's that's our main theory of change, is just to, to see other people take anything that they like from us or others, merge it together, and share it back with the world. And I think if we're all very open and active in sharing our learnings, we can create quite a rapid pace of innovation in the direction we're, in, we're curious about. I, uh, so that would be the, the, the plan A. Plan B is that we're, we're seeing natural um, pressures in our community because of a scale, like 50 core members in the main company, maybe 200 people contributing to the various companies. And it's starting to feel the tension of, actually, there's a few more people than we're used to, and that it's harder to make decisions together, and it's um, harder to know who someone is or where they're coming from. So we're naturally looking at what multiple communities look like in relationship to each other. And and we don't know what the, the optimal size is or the optimal organizing principle, but we're starting to figure out um, what multiple communities would look like in the Inspiral network. And, you know, we're not trying to grow lots of communities. We just we think that there will be a natural evolution to some number. Interesting. I like, uh, I like that you've acknowledged the facilitator's input in, in, uh, in the creation of Inspiral. Uh, as as a as a core element, that's something that um, that the work that I'm doing with with working together is is really is really keen about. I feel like you can get a lot of people together in a room to do something, whether it's working on a contract or coming together for a conference or something, and it really um, it really all depends on what the vibe of that space is and how how people feel coming together to work together. Um, that, that will determine what the outcome looks like. So this, this idea that you guys have of, of kind of uh, this theory of change you have of spreading the organizational model, this is a really interesting thing because a lot of what, you know, what it seems like you're here to talk about on the West Coast right now is, uh, th- you know, these kind of ideas that you guys have been working on, like minimum viable governance and, and things like this. These are kind of you know, new new concepts that I don't think a lot of people are, are really thinking about too much. So are you able to share uh, with with our listeners right now some of these ideas that uh, that you've, you know, stumbled upon or, or actively kind of tried to um, innovate and build upon through your work to, to 
better create this interesting business model that is in spiral? Yeah, sure. And I think that for me, it's it's half sort of sharing and half learning as a journey. Yeah. And that it's like pretty much most of the things that we've used that are valuable, we've copied from somewhere. And I think that there's it's less about saying, here's a model which you have to have the whole model to make it work, to say, here's a bunch of patterns, take the patterns you like. And some of them rely on each other to actually work. But right. it's it's all about mixing and mashing, in my opinion. So um, you mentioned the minimum viable board that, so for example, most of our companies or most of our organizations and part of the New Zealand law is you have to have a board of directors, which is common in most sort of legal frameworks. So we've got all these organizations where we'll have trustees or directors, and that's actually quite an opinionated position saying that we, we want a small number of people to have the liability and the power to control this organization, which wasn't the opinion that we wanted to have. So we have to have directors, but we also don't want to have a small group of people who set the strategy and have all the power in the organization. So we created something we called the Minimum Viable Board, where we scoped the role of our board of directors to be... Um, make sure that we're legally compliant, make sure that we're financially solvent. That is it. That's the only job that they have. And that all of the other things a board of directors normally does, such as strategy, such as hiring, such as um, promotion and outreach and um, securing resources, we put explicitly out of scope of the board of directors. And so we still need to solve those things, but we can solve them through more decentralized mechanisms and through engaging more of the organization. And so that was just one thing we did. And so they've, in our handbook, we've got some documentation about the decisions we made about our minimum viable board. But that will be one idea, which if people like it, they can experiment with it and copy it and, and see what works for them. Mm-hmm. But we were really trying to solve how do we comply with the legal system that we need to while still valuing democratic control by the people inside the cooperative. So there's a few other ideas like that, which we often talk about when we're connecting with folks. One of the other models that has worked for us has been this idea of called variable contributions. So the mechanism, the financial mechanism of Inspiral is there's a bunch of companies and there's a bunch of people who contribute money to it. So it looks a little bit like a membership-based organization in terms of its financial model. And that uh, often when people contribute to a commons, whether it's the government with tax or whether it's a, a sports club or whether it's something else, you give your money away and then you don't have much influence over how it's spent apart from political action. Like you may have some political rights to appoint the people who spend the money but and they might talk to you sometimes, but usually there's quite a distance between the money you give and how it is spent. Mm. And so the idea of variable contributions, one of them is that people give what they want to. So instead of saying, here's a fixed rate, which everyone does, we sort of say, here's here's some guidelines about what you can contribute. And here's maybe a baseline we do for individuals. But um, it's very much up to the individual or company to choose how much money would you like to give to the commons. And then once they do that, we say, here's some of the money we're going to put aside for our agreed upon overheads, which we'll try and keep as small as we can. But the rest of it, you get to decide how it's spent. So we use a participatory budgeting mechanism for that, where people can retain rights over some of the money they contribute. And then it looks like an internal crowdfunding campaign where anyone who wants to can pitch a project and say, I want to upgrade the website. It's going to cost $2,000. Who wants to fund it? And if they get funded, it goes ahead. So it's about democratizing the budgeting process 
and so people can have more control over how their money is spent on the group. And then if you use a collective decision-making process like Lumio, that's how you can start to make decisions about what the overheads are in the group. So this is this idea of having control over your contributions, participatory budgeting, has been trialled in lots of contexts. And for us, we just um, made a spreadsheet and started doing it manually for a couple of years. Then we built some software called CoBudget, which is um, how we run it at the moment. And um, that was an idea that's worked quite well for us. Interesting. And then we've got lots of other little process, like, you know, it's easy to start to go through some other parts of Inspiral, such as how people join, how people leave, where there's just little tricks which we found work for us. Um, for example, um, with all of the shareholders of the cooperative, every six months we ask them if they still want to be a shareholder or whether they'd like to leave. And so this thing about actively choosing to keep staying a member, um, it's just a, a question that goes out on Lumio. And some people say yes, and some people say no, and some people say I'd like to think about it. But it's really just prompting people to reflect on, actually, do I still feel like I want to be a member of this company? Interesting. And that's never, uh, there's never any looming sense that this question is being asked because something might be going on with, you know, the... I guess one of the things that, that happens so often in organizations, especially just traditional uh, organizations that have hierarchies and everything, is there's a lot of secrecy and there's a lot of uh, opaqueness. Do you guys feel that there's any of that at all in, our, or in, in, in Spiral? Is there ever any sense of that whatsoever? Or do you feel that the approaches and the techniques and the patterns, as you call them, uh, that you guys are using have rooted that out completely? Uh, so we definitely have more information asymmetry than I'd like. And that we've been working, you know, it's really easy from the beginning to say, yes, we value transparency. Mm. But the thing about transparency is, ex transparency is it's expensive. That if you just make all of the information available, it quickly turns into data. So that it's like, ah, oh, I could find out what the numbers look like, but I'd have to have a whole bunch of skills and I would have to have a whole bunch of energy and time to go and mine the data sources and then I can form a cohesive picture about how much money we have. Right. And it turns out only some people have that time, motivational skills. And so instead, if you want to have actionable information, you need someone to actually spend time writing up summarized financial reports. And the thing I found when I was, because I was publishing the profit and loss really early on quite regularly, was that even then, people wouldn't understand it and it wouldn't be information for enough people. So right. one of the reasons why we started CoBudget was to answer the question of how much money do we have, um, what have we spent it on, what can we spend it on, and so that everyone could really easily see it. it. But it was quite expensive to do that. And I found that the idea of transparency is that you need to spend a significant amount of time, money, and energy to make um, transparency real. And uh, but I'd say that in general, uh, one one idea about particularly the the members who re-choose their membership is that we do that on a clock. So every six months we ask that question, which is when we also do our network retreats quite often. Right. I'm sure, what's going on with my video? I keep turning itself off. Um, I'll just keep turning it on again. <laughs> we'll keep having a battle. Um, and. So that, that way there's not, never a case of, oh, why are they asking now? It's just that every six months we ask everyone, do you still want to be a member? Mm -hmm. And every 12 months we ask people, do you still want to be a contributor? 
and that's another pattern that really worked well for us was we have a core group of members who uh, have a share in the company and then that's basically a quite a tight group where the idea is that all of the members basically trust the other members and that then we have a group of contributors which is a easier to join group where one member says yes this person's great let's add them to the contributorship and that that idea of an inner layer of membership and an outer layer of membership um, has been quite effective for, oh, actually, let's work with someone for six months or 12 months before we give them a share of the cooperative. And then when we do, where it's very hard to get a member to leave. So it's a, a quite a, um, it's a good sort of proving ground. And also there's lots of people who want to work within Spiral but don't want to really commit or really spend the time to build the, the time and the relationships with everyone. And that's really good. But by having this layer of contributorship, that's a way for people to contribute and still be part of it and still be in the information systems or earn a living or that kind of thing. Interesting. Interesting. So tiered tiered approach to inclusion in the in the ecosystem. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, I think what we've talked about here is uh, it's, there's a sense that you guys are really struggling with you know, some, I don't know, I guess, I guess I would call it uh, this, this, uh, this desire to just kind of do things as they, as they've always been done. That's, that's the mainstream that's surrounding your guys' efforts in a sense, right? Um, and, and you've done a lot of good work to design these patterns and these different kind of approaches to, uh, you know, governance. Um, but, in, in putting all that together, I mean, what are what are some of the the kind of stories around around those challenges and those efforts that you guys had in building that stuff? What uh, what led you down the path of you know the minimum viable board, for instance? Um, were you were you trying out you know the the conventional governance models, or did you always know from the beginning that this conventional model just won't work because it creates this dynamic and it does this and this and this you know I'm just curious to hear some of the learnings that you've had in, in encountering the challenge of working together in this in this more flattened system and so the minimum viable board's an interesting one where we had that opinion from the beginning that when we started the foundation which was like I think 12 we had to have a board of directors but we very really clearly tried to frame it as just do the minimum necessary what we found was that over time, more, the board started to naturally do more and more things. And that was because that we didn't have enough leadership within the organization. So as a whole, Inspiral just didn't have a paid CEO or any kind of people who were resourced to spend time improving Inspiral. It was up to the members to do it. And we found that a lot of members were busy and that there wasn't enough active citizenship amongst the group to prevent, to, to make the decisions needed to be done. So what? Uh, so the minimum viable board is only possible for us because of another pattern that we're playing with called the Catalyst Program, which is essentially seconded people who work on a clear leadership brief for the organization. So the Catalysts are responsible for holding some of the regular rhythms. They're responsible for maintaining our improvements board, which is where the things to improve in Spiral get listed, and it's sort of like our work in progress or Kanban board for how we improve in Spiral. And they're responsible for uh, communicating and being part of that transparency group of saying, hey, here's information, everybody, and sending it out there. So they've, they've got quite a limited scope. They don't have any formal authority or power in the group. 
But the main thing they've got is that they're resourced by ventures to work on Inspiral itself. And that just by having people who are paid um, or self-funded to work on Inspiral, that's reduced the pressure where the board was naturally getting overloaded with, with information and, and responsibility. Would you call these catalysts leaders in any way? Or do you feel that they're still part of the cooperative in a sense? No, I think that, uh, you know, we've, I think different people in Inspire wouldn't have different language around it. Um, personally, I, I see it as a leadership role. And that I think that um, leadership is actually quite necessary and healthy for even flat organizations to work. You just want to have a depth of leadership and you want to have people, no one leads all the time and everyone leads some of the time kind of dynamics. So, but I do think it's essential that people, um, that, that leadership is there in a group. And that's more of a personal opinion than a collective one. Well, it's also, I think, I think a lot of times people get confused between, you know, leadership on the one hand and authority on the other. You know what I mean? Like you can have leadership without authority in some organization that you're a part of, right? You can have authority without leadership. And I think, uh, you know, for, for a lot of folks who work in conventional systems, they have lots of experience of that at work. I'm mindful of our time here. It's almost seven and you got to go. And, you know, I really got to, I really got to say thank you for, um, going through some of those, those patterns, those, those models that you guys are using. Cause I think that's, and that's in your handbook as well. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and it's that, it's that kind of stuff that the world needs more of, you know, the world needs more people experimenting with organizational, you know, design principles, um, to come up with different ways that we can come together. And when we, when we talk next time, we can talk about things like the cap returns idea that you, uh, that you were talking about there and some other stuff. Yeah, sure. That sound good? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, yeah, no, I'm happy to talk more about, I guess, my main theory of change at the moment, which is sort of a lot of the motive for, for traveling around and just trying to find multiple entrepreneurial co-ops and help them find meaningful value exchanges with each other and work on some scalable ventures. Yeah, no, it's that that's that's part of what I'd like to talk about next time too. Excellent. Okay. All right. Thanks, Josh. No worries. Talk to you later. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. A few months after our initial conversation, Joshua and I connected to continue exploring all things in spiral. Joshua had just finished with his tour through Australia, North America, Brazil, and Europe, and for our second conversation we talked a bit about his travels, and we go deep on the philosophy of participatory organizations. We'll return for more after our background music is done. The track is Calabash by Coffee from Dublab's Bonus Beat Blast compilation.
thanks again, Josh, uh, just right off the bat for, for coming to talk with me again, uh, on the, uh, on the internets here through Skype. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, I know that you're probably really busy with all sorts of different in spiral related matters. You seem to be doing a lot these days. Um, and, uh, that's some of the stuff that I wanted to talk with you about today too in our, uh, in our conversation was all of the things that you've been up to with Inspiral. Um, because in the last conversation that we had, we ended up focusing a lot on the, on the business plan side of things, like the business model side of things, uh, and getting really, uh, in depth into how Inspiral kind of looks from an organizational DNA standpoint. So, um, you know, we can still talk a little bit about that today too, but, um, I thought it would be really good if, if you're, uh, if you're game to kind of start the interview out with, um, just a bit of storytelling around the last, I guess, what, two months or three months that you were traveling around the world. It seemed, it seemed like a pretty cool adventure that you're on. So I'd love to hear, hear a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. I spent um, the last couple of months of the year just doing workshops around the place. So we started a workshop called Open and Spiral last year, and this was all about uh, how do we open source, how do we functionally open source our learning? And because we've had, a, 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 I guess, a theory of change of let's share everything we know and let's share everything we've got, and maybe people will copy it. And what I found was that you can publish stuff on the internet all you like. And a few people might read it and they might engage it, even when you've got a decent audience. You know, it's, it's very hard to action text or video into something meaningful. Whereas when you show up and meet people in person or you tell stories in person or at conferences or events or run workshops, it seems to be a lot more actionable, the insights that come through. And I think some of that's the two-way dynamic of it and a bunch of other things. So mm-hmm. what we do is we, we, do, we ran lots of workshops last year. And this whole idea of open sourcing and spiral just became the starting point for a conversation with all these interesting people around the world who are just, um, you know, a lot of people are looking at the problems of the world and saying, how do I change them? And looking at uh, decentralized organization structures or social enterprises or publications or all these different strategies for saying, this is the piece I want to contribute. Mm-hmm. And so we just got to meet a whole bunch of them and say, here's some stuff we've learned. And some people found that useful and some people didn't. It was, it was a starting point for a conversation. And, the, I guess the most um, – so we, we ran workshops in the west coast of the U.S. We went to Europe twice. We went to Australia. We went to Brazil. Um, just, you know, places where we knew people and they invited us to come and run workshops. Once we told them what we were doing. And it was yeah, just a diversity of people. Like I, uh, uh, one of the um, – in Brazil, we started to meet some people who had, like, built a big co-working space and had lots of people forming a – I, not, a, not a formal cooperative, but a mutual support business structure around it. Mm. Um, Goma, there were, were lots to learn there. Um, in Europe, there's just a lot of stuff going on um, in different places. So Harry Robbins and Outlandish in the UK, they uh, started to do something which it used to be called the Megazord as a working title, but they turned it into basically it's a, like a cooperative of cooperatives idea. Mm. And they had a retreat um, in November, which one of the team went to and helped out there. And we met like five or six different cooperatives throughout Europe who were doing sort of similar themed things. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Australia, there was a, we started connecting with some government <coughs> folks who were doing uh, just you know 
inside the government trying to make a change, working mm-hmm. with the bureaucracy. And it was just this, this just diverse groups of people from all different parts of the world, but there was a lot of commonality there. And I think one of the things which the, a common theme I saw amongst many groups, when we started to say, hey, here's our story, what, what do you want to talk about? We can talk about anything you want. And people would go, how do you build high trust groups? How do you build trust in community? That was a theme which a lot of people started to question, just the nuts and bolts of hmm. were quite hungry to learn more about. Interesting. Yeah, that is a, that's a pretty big question. It's live. And I, I, I like what you said there um, in the start of, of what you're saying there about how, you know, you can publish as much as you want online and you can put videos and whatever up, but uh, you don't really get that same interaction until you're in person kind of wrestling these questions and ideas down to the ground, so to speak. And it seems like, you know, that's, I think that's the way a lot of um, organizing that starts out online ends up kind of turning back to the the community, so to speak, in a sense. And that's, uh, that's great that you did that. Um, some of the things that you shared during these exchanges with people, what, what, what was it that you would tell them when you went to these different places? What were you trying to share and kind of um, get out there into the world? So often it was a fairly, when I was running workshops, it was a fairly, um, a format worked quite well in lots of scenarios. And this was around the idea of, Let's just hear from everybody in the room about who they are, yeah. why they're here, what their background is. So just surfacing that. Then we'd sort of bring in a piece of, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes about some stories about Inspiral. Mm-hmm. And then that would be a prompt to say, okay, as a group, now that you've heard everything that everyone's brought to the room and you've heard some of our stories, what do you think the most interesting piece of topic or conversational question to focus on would be? And we'd, then we'd go through a group facilitated decision-making process to figure that out. Hmm. And then on the, off the back of that, then we'd start to do some like I've usually got 12 or more sort of different pieces of workshops or processes or content we could use. And based off where the group went, that's the ones we would focus on. And so some of this was, it's very much about the experience of being in a participatory organization where how do you actually get 20 people who've never met before or have limited experience with each other to decide how to spend their time quite efficiently? And you know, we share some techniques about how doing that. So hmm. there's a little bit of showing as well as telling mm-hmm. in, in that first part. And the things that we'd often talk about, or I'd often talk about within Spiral, are things about the member-contributor split and how you can have a member where a member is someone that most members trust a whole lot, and a contributor is someone that one member trusts a little bit. But these two circles of trust were a very hmm. effective way have a very solid core where you have this high trust group of people with a very low friction of transactions and a very permeable boundary. It's very easy for someone who doesn't know the group to join. So it's, it's trying to have the best of both worlds of, um, of high trust, tight relationships with a small group of people you've known for a long time, mm-hmm. as well as an open door for anyone who wants to come into it. Can you, yeah, I, the, I see what you're saying there, but can you elaborate on it a bit more? It's, it's, uh, it sounds very theoretical the way that you described it, but I, I know what you're saying. I, I think I get a sense of, but maybe if you could elaborate a bit more on this. Yeah, sure. We may be deviating back into the organizational we theory were. side of things a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the, the Inspiral structure is there's a foundation at the middle and it's a cooperatively owned enterprise. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows one share, it's one share per person. When you have a share of that group, 
then you basically have a veto right over the, some significant decisions in the group. You also have the power to invite new people into the group. So the idea is that it, whoever, the, the people who make up the organization shape it a whole lot so that when you get your share as a member, you have the power to, to affect the makeup of Inspiral by inviting people into it. So it's a significant power. Mm-hmm. You also have the power to stop a decision. And that, and, you know, that's, that's just, again, a more significant one. So you, it takes a long time for the other members to meet someone and say, yeah, we think we want to give you this power. Because right. you need to build relationships with lots of people. It takes a year or two for that to happen. Right. And, and so, so the contributor then, is, is different in the sense in that they don't have that same kind of power right off the bat. But then they also, but the contributors are people that we've met quite briefly. They can jump in and they can see all of our budgeting. They can propose projects. They can earn right. money. They can be part of all the decisions. So in a way, they get a radical access to a whole bunch of stuff that you normally wouldn't if you were just showing up to a new organization mm-hmm. and as a, as a sort of an interested party. And then they have the opportunity over time to build relationships and to do projects and re- build reputation and then become an owner of the business. So it's a, that, that, that two-tier structure of contributor member has been, we've been doing that since 2012, and it's one of the most useful things that um, has worked for us. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it is interesting, the kind of trust dynamics that get created with that. Hey, so, yeah. so that's one of the things that you shared and that people seem to uh, focus on quite a bit was this, um, you know, how you, how you create trust in these organizations. What, uh, what other things did you learn from these kind of varied places that you went to and these varied organizations that you saw? Are there examples of people out there who are basically trying to do um this you you mentioned that there's some who are trying to do the same thing that you guys are doing um but are they doing it in a different way are they kind of looking at the open governance models that you guys have in place and and riffing off of those or is it is it totally its own thing i think that i I saw two big themes so one theme is this whole self-management world so this is where you'll see teal where you'll see the reinventing organizations crowd holacracy sociocracy Mm mm-hmm deliberately developmental organizations, open participatory organizations, all these management frameworks and theories and people trying them out in practice say, how do we, how do you do decentralized organizations or how can you use software to change the way we coordinate? Uh, what is the purpose of a corporation? Why do they exist at all? Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. Um, you'll see the, the blockchain people and the DAO people and all this whole world of just how do we use everything we know and the technology we have to organize as effectively as possible. And so that that's the, that's I, that feels like a big flavor of a movement, which mm. I sort of get in my brain under the heading of like self-management. Mm. And then there's this other sort of movement, which is sort of like a case of um, the world is messed up. So many things are broken in our politics, in our education, our financial systems. Even money is flawed. Mm-hmm. The whole concept of why why do you own property the way you do? Just like when you look at the fundamental architectural decisions of our global civilization. So much of it's just broken. And then there's this massive group of people who are just saying, wow, how do we fix this? And people have got all different answers. Some people make art. Some people go into government. Some people start companies. Some people work into the not-for-profit sector. Some Mm -hmm. people write books. But there's just this massive movement of people saying, how do I make the world a better place with the small contribution I've got? And and that that sort of movement is is kind of – 
it doesn't have a name and it, it's hard to label. And, you know, you see subsectors of it, like people trying to use business for good, sort of fall under social mm-hmm. enterprise maybe. Yeah. Or you see like the, the journalist sort of the, the fourth estate and whatnot. So there's that, that, that movement I think is just, is massive. So there's something that happens when you travel and you meet people and it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah you're part of that movement. Great, gotcha. Um, we're on the same wavelength. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's just a case of, cool, what are you doing? What am I doing? Comparing notes. How can we help each other? That, that feeling of solidarity. It, um, it's yeah, that that's something quite remarkable that I've I've seen a lot. In my- it's yeah, I remember that from my traveling experiences. One of the things that uh, one of the things that I like about about traveling too is that you do bump into all these different people that you know they're coming. You know, meet a guy from Germany and a, another another kid from Australia, and you know you're all kind of thinking on the same questions and trying to tackle the same problems in, in, in your life. And I think that's really interesting that you mentioned that a lot of these people are all, uh, in that second camp thinking about, you know, how, how can I make an impact in the world? What's the best avenue or path that I can follow to do that? Uh, and some people might choose business, other people might choose government. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of what, what you're left with in a sense, is if you if you start to think and read, you know, about some of these big wicked problems that the world is facing right now, getting into food sovereignty issues or climate change or what may have you, as soon as you start to go down those paths, you you invariably find yourself at the other end of that journey, wondering, okay, well, where can I put all my energy into? Right, and the thing that's uh, the thing that's great about Inspiral, uh, from you know, from my kind of outsider's view on it, is that it's a totally different model of a container to kind of put that energy into. You know, like it's it's an actual how should I put this? It's a working uh, it's a working space to be able to put your energy. Um, and your desire to change the world and to make an impact that matters into something versus if you go to government or if you try to start a business, you're, you're walking into these structures that are kind of unquestioned in a sense, you know, like we've always, we've always done things this way is the usual mantra in so many of those spaces. So this is just how we do things. It's, it's been this way for decades or whatever, but I think you know, where we're at now is at this place where we need to be thinking about how we can take organizational models and theories, try them out, uh, test them, see what works, see what kind of institutions we can create together, and, you know, try to really consciously design them and develop them. And, and that's that's kind of what, what you guys are all about. So kudos, kudos to you guys. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, one thing I've noticed a lot as, you know, I've been at this for sort of seven or eight years, is that when I sit down to talk with someone, often stories come out of my mouth that I've never said before hmm. and ideas form that I've never articulated before. And I can always trace the, the lineage of the thinking or the ideas. But oftentimes, and it doesn't matter whether it's the, hey, what is in spiral question, but sometimes different language comes out. And there's something deeply co-creative about speaking and listening together. 
And it reminds me, and so when you're talking then about the idea of what we put our hopes into, it reminds me of um, when I was in Seattle, uh, we met a lovely man called Ray who does a lot of work with the Indigenous communities. And so he's like an elder in the communities and, and deep wisdom, and he does a lot of workshops around Indigenous mind. And just mm. how the Indigenous worldview is so different from the Western worldview or the colonial worldview, and, the, and, 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 in, and in lots of ways. And just as we were talking, the story when we were talking about why didn't spiral start was essentially what came out for me was that it was just a bunch of us who look at the world and go, wow, that's scary and awful. And we just put all of our hopes into an idea that maybe if we work together, we can make some kind of difference. And this, this image of Inspiral as a basket of hope, which a lot of people who really don't have any reason to believe, a rational reason to believe that that hope will come true, that are hoping nonetheless, that's, that, that captures some of the spirit for me, which was just where we're all just trying to make a difference. And we think that if we try together, that maybe we'll have a better shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I can say in my own path, that I've been, you know, trying to find the spaces to make a difference in and consciously uh, make the effort to explore the different sectors. At least that that was kind of my starting point, I think, in my in my late teens was, you know, I don't want to just teach or I don't, I don't want to just work for a business or something like this. I want to kind of do it all. I want to do a tour through it all. And now I've... I've kind of gone through the education system. I've gone through the nonprofit industrial complex <laughs> and and now I'm in the in the government uh industrial complex and I'm I'm beginning to poke around in business ideas and things like this. And I think that business is almost the space where there's the most flexibility to do interesting things because you're on the one hand, you're trying to bootstrap things yourself. So you're not being dependent on grants. You're not trying to, um, you know, situate what you're doing within the mandate of some new government that just came into power. Um, you're just basically trying to respond to market needs and what, what people want, right? Uh, but also being able to have the flexibility and the autonomy to think about doing that in a way that moves the dial somehow on some of these bigger issues. And I think where a lot of organizations fall is they they have the autonomy part down. They, you know, they're really great at making money and being an awesome business. Um, they might have some of the sustainability stuff down, but they don't they don't quite <laughs> they don't quite tackle this issue of um I guess what you call it is just uh, uh, being responsive to who human beings are as as people who live and work together and who want to inhabit a system of relations that isn't alienating to them, right? And this balance between autonomy on the one hand, like feeling feeling like you can be free to pursue a project or an idea that you have. And then collaboration on the other hand, like working within a group of people and maybe a kind of bigger idea that, that requires the whole group to come together on. It's like those two things, um, 
they seem really difficult to balance, even in an organization like Inspiral. I'm wondering, how do you, how do you guys deal with that, that tension between, you know, letting somebody pursue their own project on the one hand and giving them their full reign, and then also figuring out how to collaborate and kind of come together as a group around certain things. I think that there's there's something interesting in organizations around tension, and that that just as you named them, the value that we've got a very conscious set of values where one of the things we value very deeply is individual freedom. If you have an idea, you should just be able to pursue that idea and mm-hmm. not ask permission or have to get the consent of lots of people to do that. On the other hand, we really deeply value collective action, that if we agree on some things which everyone sort of commits to, we'll be able to do more together. And they're in complete tension with each other. Mm. The, more you, the more you value collective action, then the less freedom you have. And it is a very clear trade-off in lots of ways. And the processes you need that work for freedom are the processes you need for collective action, cultural processes or financial ones or social ones. And so but both of them are equally valuable in a way. And mm. so how do you balance them is just a continual discussion in the case of always looking and measuring and saying, okay, we value both of these things. How does this, how does this idea, this initiative or this suggestion um, affect both of them? Will it limit people's freedom? If so, is that limitation worth the upside? Will it um, limit our collective action and pull us in different directions? And if so, is the, the diffusion of purpose or the diffusion of, of shared DNA um, healthy or unhealthy? And it's just, and there's no rule. It's just a, the question's the only thing. I think that's a, um, the, how, how we do that in practice is really just about conversations and asking those questions. It's very, um, a lot of us who work on the design of our processes and the design of Inspiral are often thinking about what will this, what will this process impact have on individual freedom? Mm-hmm. So an example of this would be um, the process of how does someone join Inspiral? is that oh, for someone to become a contributor, it just takes one member to think, yes, that person should be a contributor. But there's a lot of autonomy there. There's a lot of freedom. But then you can also have a whole bunch of people who don't know each other or aren't good fits or that kind of thing. So then the process of how someone becomes a member is sort of the opposite. It's a complementary one of actually you need all the members to consent to this person to becoming a member. And it's the balance of those two where you start to form stability or a stable structure or a stable process hmm. and that these two complementary processes are like two sides of a coin where they tug you each they tug in different directions but the balance between the two creates some kind of harmony it's fascinating and, and it makes me think of um a kind of opposite example and this is actually i'm going to reference another interview that i did that's that's the first one that i released uh, where I talked with David Leach about uh, the kibbutz in Israel, mm-hmm. and they kind of uh, they kind of took that that principle of equality, uh, and you know I would imagine for many of these kibbutzes uh, they they would probably be asking the same questions around you know what is what is this thing that we're going to do gonna uh gonna do in terms of impact on equality how is it gonna impact that value that we have and just as a kind of totally (laughs) you know totally different example um 
you can see how it transformed the social relations in those communities. Uh, and the famous example is this uh, is this tea kettle. I don't know if you're familiar with this tea kettle example in the kibbutz. So the idea is is that um, I, I can't remember which specific kibbutz it happened in, but basically there was this great debate that happened in the community around whether or not one of these uh, one of these individuals in the community could have their own tea kettle in their room because they each had their own room, but then they had the shared kitchen and shared dining hall. And there was this huge debate about whether or not they could have their own tea kettle in their room because what it meant is that that person was now able to go and have tea in their room instead of having to, by necessity, come to the common area to have tea and so therefore see everybody and bump into everybody. And they worried that the repercussions that would come from that single act of allowing the single tea kettle in this room, that everybody would want to have their own tea kettle in their own rooms. And then suddenly the dining hall is empty and there isn't this sense of community anymore in there. And so they were designing for equality, right? That was their principle that they were designing on. And what it meant is that <laughs> you know, Shlomo or whoever it was couldn't have, couldn't have his own tea kettle in his room. That was the final decision that came out of it, right? And it it seems like, you know, when we start to when we start to do interesting things about organizational design, and we really start to try and take a values based or principle based approach to how we actually live and work together, it suddenly just opens up a whole conversation. It seems around, you know what what is the unintended consequence of this thing that we do or that thing or this thing it seems like the objections you'd get from the conventional business community around trying something like inspiral has done is well we're you know we can't waste our time talking about <laughs> all of these things um we just we just have to we just have to act and 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 think and make and do do you find yourselves ever coming up against those kind of uh, that kind of resistance from the more conventional side of of business when you encounter it not really because on one hand we're not really trying to convince people that this is the way you should do things and if people don't want to work this way they usually don't come and talk to us hmm. so it's really just we're just trying to design an ecosystem which a bunch of us like and want to work in and we try and share what we find with They're other people crusaders. if they like it yeah, it's, it's, I don't, there's no point in that. And, yeah. it's, and I think that um, but it's so interesting to look at history. Like if you look at the whole kibbutz movements or the commune movements and just where they went, it feels to me like a lot of them failed because they went too collective. And that when you look at the, the sort of um, uh, American business sort of culture, I think it fails because it goes too independent. Mm. And that whole sense of I think there's this balance between individual and collective which um, is rare to find. And so, but it's, it's, you know, I think it's so useful to look at any system and say, actually, what, what do we like about it and what do we not like about it? Um, because there's some elements of tea kettle in your room, which just becomes a conversation today about how do you design space and how do you design space so that it supports community. And in that way, it's quite admirable they were thinking so deeply about actually what's the consequences of these things. Mm-hmm. But it also, for me, it feels like, oh, yep, that, that seems like it's going far too towards collective action where individual property and that kind of thing is, is forbidden in some way. 
Um, whereas I think it's the, the environments which sort of entice me a lot more, the ones where there's quite a lot of radical freedom, where it's actually, you know, express yourself, be what you want to be, do the, what you want to do, all that kind of vibe. But, it's, but there's this idea of, and be aware of the community, be aware of the collective, be aware that the, the things you do have an impact on everyone and allocate time and money and space for the collective conversation. And it's much less of a pay your taxes to your collective thing mm -hmm. to spend your time and your energy supporting the whole rather than just your own endeavours. And that, that invitation to think about the whole and think about the community and to actively work on it and for everyone to be working on it in some way, I think that's that's the sort of the craft of trying to figure out these more collaborative types of organising systems. Mm -hmm. and it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting and... Uh, and it's quite a fruitful line of inquiry. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, okay. So I'm going to kind of go to um, a talk that I saw you give online. Uh, and I thought it was an interesting um, talk that you gave. And you, you mentioned at the time, this is probably about maybe two and a half years ago now, that you were really getting into biology as a way to um, come at, you know, world problems, uh, to come at kind of organizational structure and organizational design. Um, are you still on that kick with biology? Yeah, definitely. Got billions of years of R&D there just sitting to be understood. And so I think there's a lot of, a lot of patterns where you can look at those patterns and say, actually, how does that apply to some other domain? So I, th I think it's... Um, I, th I think, I don't know, I, th I think many of us should be more, um, have a deeper understanding of, of life and living systems and how they actually work. And so one of the things that you talked about in this, in this talk was organizational DNA. And uh, in the last time we talked, so we won't talk too much about it now, but in the last time we talked, we talked a lot about some of the elements of organizational DNA that made Inspiral what it is. Um, I'm wondering how you see, um, I guess, this kind of dynamic of evolution and competition that seems to naturally exist in the marketplace, um, how you see that as a force that uh, organizations like Inspiral and others like it can, can leverage and utilize to, to, um, to I guess, outcompete this other type of organizational model that's out there, which is this pyramid structure, the hierarchy with the profit motive, et cetera, et cetera. I think that uh, the reason why I'm attracted to business so much is that in the marketplace, generally, if you're better, you'll win. If you get something better, cheaper, faster, customers will normally buy it and you'll have more success than people who don't. And that the problem with that whole system, though, is that it's not a neutral playing field, that because it exists in a regulated environment, often you can see organizations which externalize costs onto society and get an unfair advantage, and then you start to see, uh, okay, now everyone does that, and that's just normal. And you see this in environmental costs and social costs and all sorts of things. So it's not a perfect system, but it is a system which I think is possible to navigate. So that if, if self-management is more effective than... Um, pyramids, and if that's actually true, then organisations around the world will just copy it relentlessly because they can succeed more doing it. The trick here, I think, though, is in crafting the DNA so that 
if you can copy it and just extract more or profit more um, without decreasing your negative impact you have on the world, it's not a very good piece of DNA. And that's why things like cap return investments or cooperative ownership or democratic control of organizations or mission-based organizing, those, those words all to me are labels for like patterns or pieces of organizational DNA. But if you actually made them more competitive, if you made it more competitive for a company to be owned by its workers or for a platform to be owned by its members, like platform co-ops or whatnot, mm-hmm. then, then you wouldn't see any more Facebooks or Ubers. Instead, you would start to see these cooperatively owned software platforms dominating the marketplace because it was better. And I think that in some way, when you look at the technology curve, that Facebook's gone, Uber's gone, like it's trying to compete in those markets. It's possible, but it's really hard. Whereas if you look at the future technologies that are coming on or the future businesses and areas, they're not, no one's won in them yet. So this is why if you can help people who are at the early stage of entrepreneurship, who have these opinions about actually let's try and make a cooperatively owned artificial intelligence company or mm-hmm. a self-manufacturing company or like all the sorts of um, the new areas of technology. And you can start to have the companies that actually win in those emerging markets with quite radical points of view because how many Uber clones have we seen in all these different areas? And it's just because Uber was successful, everyone tries to copy it. They didn't have to convince anyone or go around pitching people of the Uber model. It was just obvious to people who wanted to make something successful. So that, that, in that way, I think competition is good, but it needs to, you can't just do blind competition. I think you need to make sure that the thing is actually better, not just more profitable or better with some of the metrics. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, kind of what you mentioned there in terms of these different, these different pieces of organizational DNA that are out there that are being experimented on and tried out. And, uh, you know, one might find its way into an organization that's successful in a big way and so then becomes part of the big new reality there for what for what uh, i guess capitalism or whatever you want to call the economic system is i i tend to try to stay away from using big c capitalism and, and talking in those terms and i like to stay with kind of a small c capitalism idea that there's these that there's these um, diverse, uh, highly uh, complex market systems that are regulated and deregulated in all sorts of different ways around the world, in different countries, um, through different trade deals, um, so much so that you can't really have a blanket notion of capitalism. There is no blanket capitalism. There's just these you know, incredibly complex market systems that exist between trading bodies. So that's, that's kind of my Manuel Delanda inspired perspective on it. And another perspective I have on it too, comes from Eleanor Ostrom. Do you know her? Mm, I'll ring some bell, but I wouldn't be able to recall. Okay. I, I think you'd really find her work interesting. She wrote a book called uh, Understanding Institutional Diversity which is, it's basically, it's all about, how should I put this? It, on the one hand, gives you a framework for analyzing any kind of institution from like a high level, like here's the, here's the agents, here's the structure, here's how all the different pieces come together. And it's all based in empirical studies that she's done 
or she's she's passed away as of 2012 so that she did with her students over 30 years or 40 years or something like this of all sorts of different models of organizations from cooperatives to you know private companies to everything right she looked at the whole pattern she looked at the um at the four different types of goods so not just private sector and public sector but also the common pool and the club good and the kind of institutions and organizations that evolved to deal with those different goods and how to manage social relationships in relationship to them and she did this through another book as well called uh, governing the commons which is almost like an anthropology of you know these institutions that have been around for millennia in some places that uh, you know might be one community's way for managing a, a forest plot and another community's way for managing how they handle irrigation systems and water and so she's done or she did all of this really detailed work on kind of the grammar of organizations and institutions and how you can unpack them so that you can then recreate different ones in the place of the kind of dominant narrative around the state or the company, the firm, I guess, as you want to call it. Right. Yeah. And I think what we need to do in this 21st century is resuscitate these kind of ideas, start trying them out, start seeing what works, start seeing what doesn't in which contexts and being really smart about how we try them out as well, right? Like some models won't work for some situations, but they will work for others. And there's a whole anthropology and there's a whole history around all of this that we can draw on to, to learn from with hundreds and thousands of years of, of interesting history. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes. <laughs> cool. Okay. You'll be able to see it there. Um, but your 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 guys's work at Inspiral makes me think of that quite a bit of of her book Understanding Institutional Diversity. So I'm looking at the time here. I'm just realizing we're almost near the end. So we kind of touched on a lot of um, uh, philosophical things almost this time around, which was interesting. Uh, and I'm wondering if you'd be game for kind of a rapid round of some questions. Okay. So here's the first one. This one's kind of a bit of a gimme. So, um, what book has influenced you the most and your approach to your work and why? One, um, I'd say that one of the biggest would have been, oh, Good for Great, Maverick, and Here Comes Everybody. So that's three books. Um, so <laughs> Good to Great was basically Jim Collins, and it was just the story of organizations and like, oh, actually, there's all these organizations and you can copy pieces from all of them. That was something I got there. Hmm. Maverick was treat people like adults instead of like children, that people fit the container, social container they put in, and that if I'm in a system which encourages childlike behavior, I'll behave like a child. Hmm. If I'm in a system that encourages adult-like behavior, I'll behave like an adult. And that it's as much the system as the individual, that often we attribute it to the individual. Um, and here comes everybody was just the idea that 
and the cost of trans of when technology changes, the way we organise can change dramatically, and that there's this vast opportunity space which is before us, which has never been there before because of our technology in terms of the way we organise. So there's three. That's good. That's good. Okay, here's a follow up question to it. If you were to write a five thousand word paper on the three books, what would your central thesis be? Uh, open source your business, and if you share everything you're learning about organizing with technology, and if you copy other people who are sharing what they're thinking, we could speed up the pace of innovation in this whole sector, so that we can start to see the pace start to match the pace of innovation we're seeing with technology. And I think that open sourcing our business practices and actively building community around them, we can see an explosion of innovation hmm. in the terms of how we organize. Cool. Well, you were really fast with that answer. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to get him on this one, but it didn't work. didn't work. Okay. Um, so who do you consider to be a mentor? And how did this person impact you? Um, and what, you know, what any kind of valuable lessons or learnings did you, did you garner from this person? It's been a long time since I've had someone who felt like a mentor and that often I feel like I'm surrounded by people who are inspirations and I take learning from so many people, but the, the language of mentor isn't one that I use commonly to describe my relationships with people. Um, so when you say mentor, I think about my Taekwondo teacher when I was a teenager and I think there was something, one of the things that I really just remember was just this ethics and values and serving people and just a deep humility about actually don't do stuff for yourself, do stuff for others. And that's that's one experience that I formative. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that, that is kind of what I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of a mentor is, you know, we can find ourselves in these organizations or these groups of peers, right? where we do learn and inspire each other and all of this, all of this kind of stuff. But then uh, sometimes in our lives, we encounter somebody who just seems to have a, a certain degree of wisdom and it's usually because they're older. Right. Um, and it might be when we're kids or when we're older or whatever, but we, we have this person and they, they, uh, they can sometimes make a real big impact on our lives. So that's a, that's great. It's a great story. Do you still practice Taekwondo? No, I haven't for a while, um, probably 15 years or so. And uh, I've done a bunch of my other martial arts since then, and I'm looking for another one now. And it's um, kind of a lapsed practice. And, yeah, it's interesting that there's lots of people I engage with who feel like elders in a way. They don't feel like mentors. And I think that's, it might just be my definition of the word, the idea of mentoring being like a kind of a quite clear commitment from each party to be mentored and to mentor Mm -hmm. And it's uh, and it's something that, you know, not intentionally um, and not for any particular reason, but I just haven't had much of that experience in professional life. Okay, cool. All right. Tell me about an important failure you've had in your life and what was the central lesson? So I'm thinking about um, one of the one of the ones in Inspiral was a couple of times now a theme has recurred, which has been around 
uh, we had a space business. So we started a co-working space because lots of people wanted to work together. And we didn't want to charge them too much, so we made it sort of really low-priced. Mm-hmm. And a few of us helped start this business and got a lease, and then we started to get someone to manage it, and then we went on and started doing other things. And it was the, the – and then, you know, it started to struggle, and then we spent years sort of trying to support it, and no one really wanted to support it, and then we ended up shutting it down. And there was something about that whole saying about um, don't ask what the world needs um, – do what you love because what the world needs is people to be alive with what they love. Kind of, mm-hmm. right? And it was that when you start a business or a venture, because it's something that people want, but you don't have a spark for it, it's not going to draw your attention or maintain your attention, or it's not going to bring you alive because you just love that problem or that solution or that mm-hmm. way of working. Then it's just a big strategic error. And there's a couple of times where I've invested a lot of time and energy and money into things which didn't bring me alive, but did helped people. And so learning to not do that, I think, was the, the lesson I learned there because there's a few companies around the network where they just sort of turn into orphans. The people who start them don't stay with them because they weren't a good fit. Right. And that, and then no one's really looking after them and then they struggle. And it's this, that sense. And then, you know, for me, there's also lessons of actually what is the, what's the commitment you make when I start something? If I start a business or a team or a product, how can I be very explicit with people about their commitment I'm making so that we're on the same page? Because sometimes I'll say, oh, yeah, I'll put some energy in now, but it's not a long-term thing for me. And if but then it starts to get a life of its own, and it's a, um, and what am I committed to and what do I stay with for a long time? And it's interesting to look at the things that I haven't been committed to and the things I have been committed to. Like I've never wavered on my commitment to Inspiral as a whole and as a concept, mm-hmm. and that's it's interesting about why is that versus, say, this space where, I helped start it, but I wasn't interested in running it, mm. and and I didn't feel like I was making a commitment to run it, and and it was a very um, there were a couple of learnings. Yeah, it's it's um, a good analogy to it is is the musician who who you know they're plucking songs from the air in a lot of ways, right? Like you just you kind of I, I I'm a I'm a bit of a musician myself, so but I I don't really practice too much anymore but you, you pluck songs from the air and some of the songs, um, they were meant for you and, and you can just tell, you can play them again and again and they just, it just was meant to be other songs though. You know, they're, they're for somebody else and you got to kind of let them go, maybe play them once or twice, but it was never for you. Right. And I think probably what bad musicians are is people who <laughs> didn't, didn't see that distinction and just say, oh great here's another song I'll just this is my next song it's great not I so love much, the story not so much right um, so one last question here uh, and and this is kind of directed um, well I'll I'll just ask it and then and then you can answer it so so for anyone who might be on the fence about trying something out like like what you guys have done with Inspiral. What would you tell them? Um, make small bets and decide for yourself. So whenever there's something new, like making a you know, betting the company on it or betting something with a significant outcome on it um, isn't the way to go. It's a case of look at an opportunity to try out the thing which interests you in the smallest, safest way, give it space to be a valid experiment and just measure the results and realize that every situation is different. So just because something works for someone else doesn't mean it's a good fit. 
and that's uh, that's the main thing. It's just and just keep trying it. Just because you tried one thing and it didn't work doesn't mean stop. And I think that constant, consciously putting yourself in the persona of an experimenter, a scientist who's researching possibilities, means that. And when you research something, publish it, share it with others, and I think then start to really you know see yourself and see if it works. That's coming back to your theme of you know testing and sharing business practices and and uh, and your five thousand word essay there that uh, that you you made a thesis up for on the spot right at the last minute there it was great <laughs> okay uh, Josh thanks so much I think we're at the hour aren't we and you're a very busy man I want I want to keep you on time with with what you got to do because you're doing lots of great work with, with your crew of people there at Inspiral. So uh, with that, uh, let's, let's bid adieu, and, and we'll, we'll talk again in the future, hopefully. Well, thanks for the conversation, and have a lovely evening. You too. Joshua Vial is a co-founder and catalyst at Inspiral. You can learn more about Inspiral at inspiral.com. And you can learn more from Joshua at joshuavile.com, where he blogs about all things considered in this episode and more. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the Working Together podcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com. Oh,